0: Tuesday. Welcome back to another episode of Seasoned Crime. This is the podcast where you will always hear a story about a minority. I come to your listening streams weekly to feed your true crime craving, but on this podcast, it will be anything but the majority. If you want to hear about those cases, you can go to those podcasts. We have nothing against any of them, but here. We like our crime well-seasoned. I want to make sure that the minority crime gets just as much recognition as the majority crime does. Last week, I did the Heather Mack story, which if you haven't heard yet, you're missing out on a good one. So make sure you go back and check that one out after you listen to this. But it had me in a killer kid's mood. So when I started researching this case and um, looking for what story I wanted to do, I was still kind of in that killer kid's mode. So that's what we're doing today. But not only are we going to talk about one killer kid, I have two of them for you. Both of them have set records for being the youngest people in their respective categories. Two different stories, two different crimes, both killer kids. First, we're going to start off in India with the youngest serial killer in the world. At the age of eight, he has done what is believed to be three deaths that he committed. Let me start off by telling you the story of Amarjeet Sada. Amarjeet was born in India to a poor family. Even though he was poor, he had what seemed to be like an average childhood, but based on his crimes, it's believed that there must have been some kind of abuse that happened to him. At the very young age of eight, he took his first life. Yeah, the kid, the eight-year-old, killed a person. And not just any person, but he killed his own eight-month-old sister. Yeah, he killed his sister. He seemed to find some kind of pleasure out of this, so much so that he went on to kill again a second murder. In 2006, Amarji kept it in the family and he killed his uncle's daughter, So that would be his first cousin. At this point, two of his own family members are dead on his behalf, yet no one's saying anything. Everyone knew what was going on, his family, the villagers, but they chose to continue to look the other way. His family had the mindset of what happens in this house stays in this house, and the villagers, they felt like they should stay out of that family's business. Trust me when I say I am a proud member of the minding my own business club. But in this case, the idea that their older son killed their baby girl and they still thought this was best to keep hidden? If anyone would have said anything at this point, then what I'm about to say next could have been prevented. But everyone remained silent. So in 2007, they feared the worst when it got out that Chung Chun Devi, went to pick up her six-month-old daughter from daycare. And when she got there, the girl was missing. Amarjeet attended that daycare as well, so instantly people had a sick feeling that it had happened again. They knew exactly what he was capable of, and this time they couldn't hold back, so the villagers, they confronted Amarjeet. When they confronted him, he showed absolutely no remorse at all. He happily told him how he strangled the baby and even how he walked her to the shallow grave that he had made. He admitted to hitting the baby with a brick, then covering her in the shallow grave with some debris that he had found. After confessing everything, Marjeet was arrested. After his arrest, cops were still in awe by this and they again questioned him. But not only about the baby that he had killed from the daycare... But they also brought up the names of the two babies that had been killed in his own presence, in his family. Even though he was never charged with those crimes, the cops wanted to see if there was anything to it. Amarjeet was completely unfazed, and it gets even creepier because he was said to have been smiling. He didn't say much of anything other than continuously asking for some more biscuits. The more specific the questions got the less he would speak, but the more he would smile. Amarjit was seen by many mental health professionals and was diagnosed with conduct disorder. This is hereditary and led him to not having any kind of sense of right versus wrong. It is also found that he had a brain defect and that the chemical imbalance caused by this contributed to the increased gratification of inflicting pain on others. Amarjeet was placed in a juvenile prison, but based off the law in India, a juvenile cannot be sentenced to more than three years. The law in India also says that juveniles can't be sentenced to death or be put in prison, but they can be detained at a children's juvenile facility through the age of 18. In 2015, Amarjeet reached out to a local paper and he did say that he was in a juvenile facility. And that following year in 2016, he was said to have been released from that facility. As of today, his current whereabouts are unknown. There are still a lot of people who doubt that he could have committed these crimes. Based on the horrific crime and the fact that the bodies of the victims were all kind of hidden when they were disposed of, it's hard to believe that this was done by an eight-year-old. But then again, his excitement and the pleasure that he got when he was speaking on what he had done it made it hard to believe that it wasn't him. Either way, this case is truly one of a kind, and to date, there has never been a child killer who went to the extremes as this one. The second story I have for you today is also another case of a child killer, but this time, this one comes from Florida. It's not one, but two kids who were accused of killing. I am going to tell you about Curtis Fairchild Jones and his sister, Catherine Jones. Curtis, who was 12 at the time, Catherine being 13, is the youngest person in the country to not only be tried as an adult, but to also be convicted of murder at the same time. On January 6th, 1999, Curtis was staying at his father's house. His parents weren't together, so he went back and forth between the homes of them. Curtis and his sister, Catherine, were there, and his father's girlfriend, Sonia Sprites, as well as the male relative that was staying with him at the time. His father and the relative had left out of the home at the time, so Curtis was home with his sister and Sonia. Sonia was getting prepared to sit down at the dining room table and work on a jigsaw puzzle, but before she could even get started, Curtis shot her. To be exact, he fired off nine bullets, four of those nine hit Sonya. After shooting her, the siblings drug her body to the bathtub and then did a poor job of quickly attempting to clean up the blood trail that they had left. When they felt like they had cleaned up enough of the blood, they ran outside to the neighbor's home and they frantically told them that they shot her. After that, they dipped out and they ran right into the wooded area near their home and that's where the cops found them the next morning. After police apprehended the siblings, they quickly admitted to the murder. According to police, they said they killed Sonya because they were jealous that she was taking all of their father's attention from them. There was no trial or testimonies at all. The children were given 18 years in prison and a lifelong probation sentences. Lifelong. Like, let's talk about a setup. I keep saying children because that's exactly what they were. It's even reported that after the sentence was given, when they were walking out of the courtroom, Curtis asked if he was able to bring his Nintendo in with them. Again, children. This seemed like an open and shut case, but the fact that there was no trial means there was no real investigation and no additional information was able to be provided. There wasn't really a lot of media attention that came with this case either, so Everything was just able to slide by. If they would have looked into this case even a little bit, it would have been clear that this was so much more than just two kids who shot their dad's girlfriend because they were jealous of her. The case started getting attention from others around 2015 as it was close to the release date. After doing some digging, it was found that a major piece of information was left out of this case. Turns out there are records confirming numerous incidents of the children being tortured and abused. The records found that their abuse was caused by a close family relative. And even though I couldn't find anywhere that confirmed this 100%, I feel very confident in saying that this is the same relative that was living at the father's home at the time. The first recorded incident was in 1994. Whenever Curtis would stay with his dad, he would have to share a bed with the relative that was staying with them because of spacing in the household. When he went back to Kansas with his mom, he told her that that relative was fondling him. A police report was open. However, it was shortly closed when Curtis changed his story and said he lied and that nothing happened. A second abuse investigation was open when Curtis ended up with a bruised and swollen eye. But that case, it was eventually closed, too. A third investigation was opened in 1998, just a few months before the shooting of Sonia. Catherine had run away from home for a bit, and her teacher at school reported that she suspected that there was some possible sexual abuse happening. Child Warfare did report that they did find some possible indicators of this as well. Catherine spoke on this to a Florida newspaper, saying... Quote, he did everything but penetration. It wasn't rape, but it was touching, fondling, and oral sex. He would make me perform oral sex to the point where I would throw up. End quote. I do want to speak on that real quick, though. She said that it wasn't rape based on her age and her understanding. I do just want to make sure to clarify that any time you are forced to do something um, in any kind of sexual manner, that you are not a willing participant of, that is rape. She tried telling her dad what was going on, but Catherine said he didn't believe her and she felt that he was siding with a relative and that really hurt her. She was quoted as saying, he didn't believe me at the time and it felt like he was taking sides, like he chose his relative over me. I expected him to be at the point where he would just want to kill him. Not only did he not believe her, but he then intimidated her into retracting everything and denying it. Based on her recanting, the case was closed, but even then, the cops put out a warning. When the case was closed and they were leaving, the cops told the dad that he may want to get that relative out of his home. The police told him that that relative was a convicted pedophile. He had spent six years locked up for the robbery, in addition to being convicted of having sex with a 14-year-old girl in 1993. Their father, he didn't listen. And he allowed that relative to continue living in their home. Only a few days after this happened, Catherine said that she was taking a shower, and the relative came in, pulled back the curtain, and began masturbating to her. Catherine said she backed up, sat in the corner, and started crying in the tub. Catherine felt like all hope was lost. She was living in a home with this sexual predator, yet no one believed her. That is, until she told her brother. Curtis didn't doubt this at all, because he said he himself was abused by this relative. It was bad enough that Curtis had to deal with this, but he couldn't take knowing that his sister was going through this as well, and from there, Curtis believed that the only way to stop this was to kill him. They both agreed that the relative deserved to die because of his disgusting acts, and that no one was listening to them when they tried to say something. Their dad and Sonia also had to die because, in the mind of the kids, it was just as much their fault. This was happening in their house under their roof, so they had to be part of it in some way or another, and if they weren't, that's worse because, again, this was happening right under their nose. Curtis ended up messing up the plan by only killing Sonia and then backing out when that happened. Since the kids didn't mention the abuse before, it was never even looked into. Alan Landman, who was a lawyer representing Curtis, said that he wished he would have known about the abuse before because then he could have used it as a defense. Catherine has since expressed regret for all of it, saying that everything that happened was terrible. She feels they should have focused solely on their abuser, but in a way, her getting locked up, it was a positive for her because at least nothing was going to happen to her while she was in jail. She was once quoted as saying, at one point, I was just so happy to be away. I know that sounds like really messed up, but there was a point where I was just away from all of that. And I was by myself. And I was safe. Sonia's two daughters have spoken out before saying that they know for a fact that their mother was not the one who abused those children. So they just can't understand why it had to be their mother that died. Curtis was released from prison at the age of 29. He has never given any interviews or spoken to media since. And Catherine, she's a married woman. There you have it. Two cases of situations that just seem to be unreal. Although these stories had very different circumstances between them, one thing for sure is that these were children who did the unthinkable. Amarjeet Sada killed for pleasure. And Curtis and Catherine, they killed to escape hell. But either way, all of them were under the age of 15 at the time of their crime. Once again, thank you all for listening to our double feature this week. As always, please don't forget to rate and subscribe to the show. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Crime, or you can email us anytime, seasonedcrime at gmail.com. I will be taking the next week off. My birthday is coming up on November 7th, Scorpios represent, but one of the gifts that I'm going to be giving myself is the gift of rest, um, doing a weekly podcast plus having a full-time job and being a mother is, um, it's a lot, so I'm going to take a few days off and rest and relax and enjoy my birthday, and then I will get right back. I will be back on November 15th with another story about a minority. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Season Crime. Today's episode was researched, edited, and recorded by your host, Jasmine Nicole.